We're reading out of um, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sichar, near the plot of ground where Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't go get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Good morning. There are a couple of, of, of really significant texts in the Bible uh, that have to do with Samaritans. One is a, a story about a parable Jesus told about a man, a Jewish man, who was, who was beaten and left for dead and robbed, left on a road. And, and two religious Jews come along and they both bypass this man and carry along their way. Jesus tells this to a crowd of Jewish listeners the third person who came along was the Samaritan. And, and what they would have ex- expected to hear of the Samaritan was that the Samaritan wouldn't, would not only not help the man, but would actually step on the man as he stepped over the man to not help the man. But that's not the way Jesus told the parable. It was the Samaritan, in fact, who helped, who loved, who met the needs out of his own pocket and out of his own time and with his own donkey. And this would have shocked Jesus' listeners that the Samaritan was the neighbor in this story that Jesus told. 
The, the second significant story about uh, a Samaritan is this one. And this is no parable. Jesus encountered a woman at a well, and we're going to hear about it this morning. It's a fascinating story. To be honest, it's one of my favorite stories in the scriptures. So we're going to look at it over the next two weeks because it's so rich and it's, it's the majority of chapter 4. And I have done something I'm, I'm very proud of this morning, I'll be honest with you. I even texted Eldon this week something I knew he would be really excited about, which is my sermon points this morning use alliteration. They all st- <laughs> He loves that stuff. <laughs> Starts with the letter I. So if you're ready, here we go. I'm not sure if it'll help you or not. I'm told some people like this kind of thing. <laughs> here we go. Let's look at the four ways in which we see what we see happening through this text. First is we see Jesus using initiation. Jesus initiates with this woman. It's very simple, but he does it. Jesus initiates. He, there's initiation in this passage. Secondly, that leads to Jesus giving her an invitation. Starts with him initiating. Starts with an initiation from Jesus. Secondly, he gives her an invitation. Thirdly, as he makes mention of her husband, we come to see that Jesus already had insight into this woman. He knew precisely her circumstance. In fact, he knew everything about her already because he had divine, omniscient insight into her life. And lastly, Jesus begins to talk about true worshipers, the kind of worshipers that God the Father desires And Jesus says those kinds of worshipers are those who worship in spirit and truth. I did it. (laughs) So why don't we pray together and then we'll get into this text. Father God, I thank you so much for this church that I love. I love this church. What a privilege, Lord, it is to serve among Um, these brothers and sisters in Christ and and those who would feel welcome to come. Lord, I'm so thankful. So thankful to be a part of what you're doing and we get to um, do together, Lord. We call it being on mission, following Jesus' great commission and we're more effective together than left to our own devices. And so, Lord, we lean into you and we're thankful to be a part of a community, Lord, that long to impact our community and the world we live in. So, Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you also, Lord, that it is grounded upon your word. And so we give ourselves to your word this morning, to a powerful passage of scripture, to a conversation that happened 2,000 years ago that can have profound transformative effects in our lives today. So God, we trust it. We give ourselves to it. We pray that your spirit would move in our midst as we give our ears, our listening ears to your very words. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the first week, uh, the first Sunday in December, we endeavored to begin this Gospel of John, and here we are. I don't know when it is. I'm lost. It's March sometime, right? <laughs> it's mid-March. We are just getting into chapter four, but here we get into a narrative story that takes most of chapter four. So we're really getting going now, and so we're going to take this uh, this narrative story in a couple of weeks. We're going to look at the first 26 verses, as you can see. But this, um, the first few verses are transitional. So they, they get us to where we need to go, which is this well with this Samaritan woman and Jesus there. And so John, the gospel writer, is making this transition. And so he's saying that 
that, um, that some Pharisees observed that, that Jesus, his disciples, were baptizing more people than John. They were actually beginning to get after Jesus at this point. They want Jesus dead. They want to be rid of Jesus. And so that's their plan. And Jesus knows it. And so he leaves. It's not a fleeing, not a fear. It's simply it was not yet time for him to go to the cross. It was not yet time for him to die. And so he retreats in order to um, follow the next divine appointment. And what's so fascinating in this transition is we see in verse 4 that it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. What's interesting about that word that he had to pass through Samaria is that really he didn't. Not geographically, actually many Jews would avoid Samaria altogether. We'll get into the why of that. They would cross the Jordan, go around, extra journey in order to just avoid Samaria. In fact, Jesus on his way to the cross does that exact thing, not to avoid Samaria, but simply to follow um, God's providential plan for where he should go and when. And we actually see that taking place here. The reason he had to go to Samaria was because he had an appointment there. He was to meet a woman at a well in Samaria. He had to be there. He had to go there. And so he follows God's compelling appointment to do that. Then we see in verse 6, we, we, it begins to set the tone and the, the, the circumstance of our text this morning. It says that this place that Jesus went to, well, Jacob's well was there. If you look back um, in Genesis on uh, Jacob's deathbed, he gives this plot of land to his son Joseph and this well of Jacob's is there and that well remains to this day. And so jo uh, Jesus shows up and sits at this well, Jacob's well. And Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Um, it was about noon. Uh, sunrise would be around 6 a.m. and they would count the hours from sunrise. And it was six hours after sunrise. It was about noon. And Jesus sits himself down where he knew he was meant to go. So we see the divine characteristics of Jesus in that and that this is this is his appointment this is where he is to be and we also see his human nature as well because he's weary and thirsty we see the humanity of Christ here and so he sits at this well and waits for someone to bring him a drink well that's precisely what happens in verse 7 we see a woman from Samaria who came to draw water and Jesus said to her give me a drink and and John fills us in for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John informs us again, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, Jesus is sat at a well. A woman approaches and he says, Give me a drink. Jesus initiates. There's initiation here. So I want to paint a little bit of a picture of what's going on here. Um, the disciples went into the city to buy food. Strict Jews would not have done that. See, many Jews would avoid Samaria altogether and go around, and those who would go through would certainly bring their own food because they would not eat food handled by Samaritans lest it be unclean and make them unclean. See, Jews viewed Samaritans as in a constant state of uncleanness. Jewish men would not speak, not even be seen with a woman alone. To drink from a Samaritan's water jar, they would consider would make them unclean. Well, Jesus does both. What's really interesting here is that um, 
there is no real law in the Old Testament that says that they cannot do these things. But, but what had happened, the, 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 they had begin to, begun to create more laws around the law. So um, they, they were to be ceremonially clean. Well, they had all these ideas about what would make them unclean. And so what they would do is there would be this law, but they would build this sort of fence around the law, all these additional laws to keep them from ever getting into that, to ever handling that law or, or wronging that law. They would have all these extra laws. Religious people are super good at adding laws. Are they not? Unfortunately, many Christians are good at adding laws. You can't do this. What that person's doing that, they shouldn't. And, and, and sometimes it's sort of a Romans chapter 14 scenario. Romans chapter 14 talks about not doing things that would be to the detriment of a fellow believer, right? So there, there, you have to have some, some wisdom in, in how you handle things. You don't want it to cause other people to sin, but sometimes there isn't actually sin in the thing, but you want to be wise around who you're around and make sure that what you're doing isn't sin. But you also, we also ought not to be people who make a bunch of laws for others to follow. Well, that's precisely what happened here, but Jesus rolls in with his disciples, and what happens? The disciples go into the city to buy food. That was unheard of. And Jesus turns to a woman. He doesn't have a water jar and says, give me a drink. And she's shocked. You don't have a water jar. What are you, you going to draw water with? I can't imagine you actually want to drink from mine. This was shocking. This was shocking. The woman is there around noon when no one else was. It's not the time you go to draw water. It's the hottest part of the day, the ho- hottest time of the day. See, right after sunrise is a time where it's still relatively cool. That's when you go, to the, you go to get water. And so, you know, groups of women would have gone to the well at that point, but she's not a part of that group. We get some indication from the get-go here of, of the fact that she's an outcast. And so she is surprised that Jesus was talking to her. And it's understandable. See, he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. And a woman. We have to understand the culture for a minute here. Here's a prayer that, that many Jewish men would pray in the morning and the evening every day. Part of the prayer was this. Thank you, God, that I'm not a slave. Thank you that I'm not a Gentile. And thank you that I'm not a woman. That was a prayer that many Jewish men prayed every morning and every evening. And she would have known about that. Jesus walks up to the well sits himself there, and a Samaritan woman who's an adulterer comes to the well. She said, and, he, and he speaks to her. And he asks to use her cup, essentially. See, she doesn't know that far from being defiled by what is unclean, Jesus sanctifies what he touches. See, most people, when they touch a leper, they might contract leprosy. When Jesus touches a leper, they're healed of their disease. She doesn't realize who it is she's speaking with. Jesus chats with the woman and happily breaks social and religious taboos to do so. Amazingly, we we do not have um, nearly, really, any of those kinds of social norms happening But I wonder, nonetheless, do we go out of our way to talk with people of different ethnicities and social classes? Jesus breaking so many common 
um, social norms of the day to do so. I wondered that we don't have those social norms, but are we still not breaking them nonetheless? Do you hang with people that aren't exactly like you? I guess is my direct question. (laughs) Not your age, not your ethnicity, maybe not your social status. Do you know people like that? Do you walk up and speak to people like that? Our bent is, it's always been, to find a safe place. And what we consider safe is people like us. Their bank account is is about the same, which for for Gen Y people means you're in a lot of debt. Um, Right? You you hang with people that, yeah, really, your, your background, your upbringing, think the same as you on every subject. Heaven forbid they think differently on something that will make us feel uncomfortable, re- retreat and find people more like us, more exactly like us, right? It's a, it's a tendency we have. What's so beautiful about Jesus is he initiates something with someone so different culturally than he was. It's amazing. I love that. Not only that, he simply initiates. If you want to hear maybe perhaps the simplest point, the simplest thing I will try to compel you to do ever in my preaching, it might be this. It's this, talk. I encourage you to talk. I encourage you to talk to people. (laughs) Pretty simple, right? But I read an article, interestingly, earlier this week. The article really says we have forgotten how to talk to one another. In our culture today, we've forgotten how to talk to one another. Maybe it's social media and the internet. We just don't know how to talk anymore. We don't do it. In large part, we don't know how to have conversations anymore, he said. Rather than talk with strangers and neighbors, we scroll through our phones. You ever go pick up food and you have to wait two minutes? What do you do? I'm just going to pick up my phone, find something that doesn't matter, that will not affect my life. I'm going to scroll for a little bit. Heaven forbid I see a stranger and smile. Say hi. Right? It's just, that's us. I'm, I, I, I'm not saying this facetiously. I just, our culture does that. And, I, I, and we're Christians in it, many of us. But don't we just do the same thing? It's, it's, it's gotten uncomfortable to talk to people. Interestingly, what we think being a good neighbor is, is that we don't bother them. I want to be a good neighbor. I'm going to leave them alone. Right? That's being a good neighbor today. But Jesus calls us to love people, and that means talking, and many more things, but it certainly means talking to people is to love them. Gets the ball rolling. See, Jesus isn't telling us not to bother people. He's telling us to love them. Salvation, to be saved, comes through hearing the gospel. We see in Romans 10:17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This all begins with Jesus simply initiating a conversation with a stranger, very different than himself, but he's happy and eager to do so. In fact, he came to Samaria to do so. I was told a story recently from a man in our church, uh, an acquaintance of his owns a trucking company, and so he told me this story recently of something really beautiful that happened lately. This, this employer owns a trucking company, has a number of employees, and he was told very early on in, 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 in his business by, by someone he respected, a, a Christian man, he said, you can't mix religion and the workplace. I said, oh, okay, I, I, I won't. But a number of years later, it's just, ah, just, he was growing, and, you know, growing in faith, and he just came to a point where he's like, no, it's a... 
I have to share my faith. I have that's that's who I am. It has to bleed into everything. And so he decided one day that he would tell his employees about his faith anyways. He he would leave that advice that he heard years ago and he would he would share his faith with people. And so he decided one particular day that he would bring his employees into his office one at a time and tell them about his faith. Tell them that he loves Jesus and share the gospel with them. So that's what he did. He brought in, what, brought in an employee, the first employee that came in. He sat him down and said, I want you to know something. I'm a Christian and I love Jesus and I believe that Jesus saved me and he shared the gospel with him. What's so incredible about that is this first man that walked into his office and heard this looked right back at him and said, I believe it. And he gave his life to Jesus in this man's office. It was profound. It was amazing. And this, 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 this owner of this company was just amazed. Wow, why didn't I do this so long ago? Just share with them about me. Well, two days later, this employee called him and wanted to tell him his side of the story. And he said, 15 years ago, I started working for you because I heard you were a Christian. And I've been waiting my whole life for someone to tell me about Jesus. No one has. Couldn't bring myself to go into a church because what do I don't, I'd feel like I wouldn't know what to do. I'd feel uncomfortable. I've been waiting for someone to tell me about Jesus. And you did. He said that he went through life hoping that someone would tell him how to become a Christian. That story speaks of initiation. And there's also invitation there. That's what Jesus does for the woman at the well. Let's look at this invitation he gives. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. All right, there's a lot there. But the woman asks, to start, the woman asks but doesn't really believe it to be true whether or not he actually thinks he's better than Jacob. You think you're better than Jacob? who gave us this well and his sons and his livestock drink from this well. And Jesus emphatically responds, yes, I am. I am better than Jacob. I'm the greater Jacob. And here's why. He gives five reasons why the water he offers is better. A lot of reasons. Here they are. Two of them are in verse 10, three of them are in verse 14. Here's the five things Jesus says about the water that he, he offers. First, it's the gift of God. We're going to get into each one of these in, for a little bit, but here, let me just run through them. First, it's the gift of God, this water. Secondly, it's living water. Thirdly, the water Jesus offers will cause you to never thirst again. Fourthly, it will become a spring of water within the person. And fifthly, it wells up to eternal life, eternal life. 
Firstly, it's the gift of God. In this case, it's one of two things, this gift of God he's referring to. Both really land us the same place. Either in this case, it's likely the eternal life that only Jesus can provide is this gift of God that he's referring to, right? That's the way we would read it. That this great gift, the gift of God, is salvation in Christ. And that likely is what he's saying. But also, Jews believed that the greatest gift of God was the Torah. It was the scriptures themselves. That was the great gift. Right? And if Jesus is referring to that, here's what he's saying. If you really knew your Torah, you would know who it is who is speaking to you, and your response would be much different. Either way, it lands on the fact that the water Jesus offers is the great gift of God. Secondly, it is living water. This is a double meaning. The living water phrase here refers to fresh spring water. It's water that flows and therefore is fresh. It's not a stagnant water. But Jesus is identifying it as the Holy Spirit dwelling within a believer. It's living. This water is living water. As opposed to Jeremiah 2.13, which says, the prophet says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They have rejected the fresh running supply of God and his faithful goodness. In fact, everyone has who has rejected the living water that Jesus offered. Choosing instead the stagnant waters of cisterns they themselves prepared, discovering even then that their cisterns were cracked and leaving them with nothing to sustain life and blessing. But living water that Jesus offers, on the other hand, the great gift of God is the satisfying eternal life mediated by the Spirit that only Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, can provide. It's living water. And it will cause you to never thirst again. I love this. In essence, what it's saying is all the water on the planet is just a pointer. To the true water that Jesus supplies. The all-satisfying water that will cause you to never thirst again. All the water on the planet, just a pointer to that water that Jesus gives and offers to us. Not only will the water he offers quench thirst, but will become a spring bubbling up inside you which will refresh you with new life in Jesus. Are you greater than Jacob, she asks, who gave us this well? Jesus responds with an emphatic, yes, this living water will satisfy the deepest spiritual longings in the human heart to know God and will satisfy forever. Jesus, in the sermon he gave, called the Sermon on the Mount, begins with the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Here's one of the things he says. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. This water that Jesus offers will cause you to never thirst again. Fourth, it will become a spring of water within. Jesus expands on this more. It's less cryptic in John chapter 7, verse 37. Jesus says it clearly. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. This spring of water within is the Holy Spirit. just started reading a book recently called, by J.D. Greer called Jesus Continued. Why the Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. 
Jesus continued, why the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. He's really, he's taking that from John chapter 16, verse 7, which, where Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying, I need to go be with the Father so I can send you the helper, which um, the scriptures often use that word to describe the Holy Spirit. Why is it better? Because it's deeply personal and intimately close. The Spirit lives inside of you and goes wherever you go. Intimately close. Uh, A family member gave my son and I, uh, Boston, uh, tickets to a Canucks game earlier this week, the 4-0 debacle. We were there. We will have to go again for Boston to see a Canucks goal. Uh, but he saw a fight, to be honest, he was totally satisfied with that. So, but we, we went super early, got in, like just as the gates were opened, raced down to right behind the player's bench, you know, the $900 seats, right? We, like, like right there, at, right between the glass of their bench and the walkway that the players would come on for the, for the warm-up. So Boston could reach his hand out, and as every player passed by, you know, they'd bump him with their gloves, and every single time he would giggle and his smile would get bigger. And it was just amazing to watch this happen, you know. And he, he, he loves hockey, he knows all the Canucks. He would see their number and call out their name, Eddie Lack, Eddie Lack. And Eddie Lack would hit Boston's hand with his glove and on he would go onto the ice. And he was just floored by this. Well, for the game, we went up to our nosebleed section and, uh, and partway through the game, it, he, he just, you know, he crawled up on my lap and, and just, you know, just like, and just digs back, right? And just nestles in, just had my arms around him. And we were just having so much fun. I said, Boston, I love you so much. You're my son. I love you. What's interesting is the day before he was my son, the day after he was my son, but that intimacy of declaring and knowing and just being that close and saying, I love you, my son. Nothing beats that. Jesus walked up to a well in Samaria where an adulterous woman walked up and said, I want to give you that. Intimately close. I want to give you that. I want you to know God that closely. It will become a spring of water within. It's amazing, that intimacy, that closeness. And that closeness, that spirit within, wells up to eternal life. This is precisely what John, the gospel writer, wants to make emphatically clear. That Jesus is the eternal son of God and he came to save. We took John chapter 3 in really small sections the last number of weeks, but I want you to see something just as we graze it. In John chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus declares that whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Then comes John 3, 16, the very next verse, where Jesus says, you know, what is the most famous verse in the world, that whoever believes in me should not perish but have eternal life. Says it again. Uh, Ron Van Acker preached last week at the conclusion of his text, at the end of chapter 3. It concludes, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It's stating it three times really clearly where eternal life comes from. It comes from Jesus. Now in chapter 4, I can see it all on one page four times where eternal life comes from. It comes from the gift of living water from Jesus to people who would drink from it. 
The gift of living water that Jesus gives permanently satisfies, becomes a vigorous spring that springs up into eternal life. And he gives this woman that invitation. I'm offering you that water, he says. Then comes insight. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I love this. I love the order of it all. Jesus initiates a conversation. Jesus gives her an invitation to living water. He's done that already. And then he just really gently, really kindly, says, bring your husband. I don't have a husband. I know you don't have a husband. I know everything about you. Everything. And my offer stands. There's this verse in 1 Corinthians 5. The church in Corinth was a mess during the 1 Corinthians writing. A little bit better in 2 Corinthians writing. In our, in our Bible, we have these letters. 1 Corinthians, this church is a mess. Paul at one point makes this comment. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? That verse stands, by the way, it's scripture. What have you, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church we are to judge? Now there's a lot to say about that too. Why would we judge inside the church? Well, we would judge because we love our brothers and sisters and we want to see them nurtured and encouraged and edified and grown and challenged and accountable and that all comes that way. That's necessary inside the church. We call ourselves to that accountability with one another and um, and walking with one another in those ways that point each other to Jesus, even when we err. But he makes this really clear statement that we have nothing to do with judging outsiders. Do you not see that happening here with Jesus? He's approached this woman, already knows everything about her, offers her eternal life, and then says, by the way, I know all there is to know about you. And I knew it before we had this conversation, but I'm sharing with you what I want you to hear I offer you living water that will transform your life. We're to emphasize the gospel. Emphasize the Holy Spirit. Uh, sorry, we're to emphasize the gospel. That's what we're to share. The Holy Spirit, once someone becomes a believer, will convict a believer of sin. But oftentimes, we want to simply make people good. We want people to clean up their act. We're guilty of this in the church. We don't lead with the gospel. We lead with, what are you doing? Don't you know how wrong that is? Why are you doing that? And we, out we go into the community and share these things. Get right. Clean yourself up. We wouldn't say this if we phrased it, that clean yourself up before you come into the church. We would never say that. The doors are flown wide open on Sundays. All are to come any are to come. We would love that anybody come.
And then we share the gospel with them. And we hope that they will accept the gospel and then that the Holy Spirit will indwell in them and will convict them of sin and their lives will be transformed. But we get it backwards and say, get right, clean up. Right? Somebody, a little raggedy, comes through the church doors and, and may get glares. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that about this place. I just wonder about our hearts. Is that what we expect deep down in our hearts that people get right? Or do we rejoice when somebody who's, who maybe looks like an unlikely character to come to church comes through the doors and we praise in God? We ought to be. And we ought to share the gospel with them and love them. Who are we to judge outsiders? Well, we'd be very different than Jesus if we led with that. See, we're not called to make people good. We're called to offer them life in the only one who truly was good. The only one who truly is good. See, neat, tidy, respectable sinners still need Jesus. Cleaning up their acts really has nothing to do with it. But we do see Jesus address her life nonetheless, eventually, in relationship, having initiated, having offered this amazing invitation. See, we discover that the gospel is bad news before it's good news. And so Jesus gets there. John Piper put it this way, the reason the Bible tells us woeful news about ourselves is to make the greatness of grace and the greatness of salvation feel as wonderful as it really is. And that's what this story is mainly about, not us, but him. This great story of Jesus offering this living water to sinners. We certainly need it. It's interesting, a few weeks ago we were looking in uh, John chapter 3 about this man named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee and he was um, a part of the Sanhedrin, the governing body. And so he was really, really important. And he shows up to Jesus. He was male, he was Jewish, and he was a morally precise Pharisee. Well, the woman at the well is a woman and a Samaritan and sexually immoral. Well, both needed Jesus. Right? The really pious guy and the outcast woman. They both needed Jesus. And Jesus offers them both the exact same thing, eternal life in Christ. In his divine nature, he was omniscient and still is. Jesus looked into Nicodemus's heart and saw his reliance on self and that it wasn't enough. And so he had offered him eternal life. Jesus looked into the woman's life and saw her sin and brokenness and offered her eternal life. The neat and tidy and the moral outcast, you and me, offered that same living drink. goes on, in verse 20, this woman responds to this discussion perceiving that he's a prophet and says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So here's what's going on here. Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. The Samaritans believed that Shechem, overlooked by Mount Gerizim, was the first place Abraham built an altar once he entered the promised land. We see that in Genesis chapter 12. Plus other reasons, they concluded that Mount Gerizim was where they built, would build their temple and worship, and that's what they did. Well, in verse 20, she recognizes that Jesus is some sort of gifted man or a prophet, so she changes the topic for one of two reasons. Either her attempt was to distract Jesus from the sin question that she finds so embarrassing. Right? It's easier to talk about theology than deal with truth that's personal. Or she's like so many people who can't have a conversation about faith without bringing up the points on which they differ. Can you relate? 
It's for one of these two reasons that she does it. Let's look at them both. You'd rather talk theology than deal with truth that is personal. With the amount of books, podcasts, and blogs available, it's easy to get knowledge. It's easy to be a budding theologian if you want to be. It's not easy to be authentic, though. It's easy to gain knowledge. It's not easy to be authentic. I I read a recent study that said what the 20-somethings want, that, that, that feature, that main characteristic, what they want more than anything in their lives. You know, you'd think, like, is it fame? Is it uh, power, right? Is it respect? The one thing that 20-somethings crave more than anything is authenticity. And yet it's so hard. I hear so often about the church feeling artificial. You're going through these, you have these routines, you do these certain things. I, I want to hear personal things. I want to hear from I want it to be real. As do I. You know what that means? It means me going there. That's terrifying. It means you going there. This place becomes authentic when we become authentic. The church becomes real when we get real. Not when I get real, although that's certainly part of it. I have the microphone after all. But when we get real, when the conversation in the foyer gets real. But what we often do, right, is we talk generalities, we talk theology, and it pricks us, you know, we're talking about evangelism. Evangelism is very important. I'll use this as one simple example, right? Evangelism is important, and here we can go. We can have a, a massive discussion that's rich and edifying and wonderful about the necessity for evangelism. But as we're having this conversation, and, and I think to myself, you know, when I have opportunities to share the gospel, I, I get scared. I think that to myself. I find it really hard, really difficult to just really share Jesus. To Ah, well, here's something about evangelism that you should know. You need to proclaim it, and on you go about this, you know, arcing evangelism conversation. Something personal has come into your heart and into your mind, but I, I'm not going to go there. That's, that's what could be happening with the woman here, is that Jesus says, I know you, you don't have a husband. You, you had five, and you're living with another And she goes, so which mountain do we worship on? (laughs) Let's talk overarching theology here. Where's the right spot to worship? And she likes so many of us. It's easier to talk generally than talk personally about struggles and fears. Can you relate? How about this? The subject of Worship, for example, can't come up without musical preference. I've been a worship pastor. 90% of my conversations, when people would approach me and want to talk about worship, 90% of it was periphery stuff. Style, preference, old songs, new songs, volume. This is what's important. This is what worship should look like. This is how we should worship in the church. How we should do this. How we should do that. I like it this way. As a worship pastor, reflecting back, I can't think of one time someone came to me and said, how do I more deeply worship the sovereign God of the universe? Now maybe I'm not the the voice on that. (laughs) But that was never the conversation with the worship pastor. I'm not really trying to talk about worship. I'm trying to talk about having conversations about faith where we can't help but bring up the points in which we differ. Worship's one of those tricky ones, right? We differ a lot, so it's challenging for us. 
See, the subject of worship is actually about reverent devotion to God, a posture of the heart brought forth through all of life. It includes singing and prayer and preaching and sharing and serving and fasting and generosity and all of life is worship. It is easy to emphasize differences and preferences, emphasis on what we were for, not what, you know, the way we perceive it to be, the gospel um, really being secondary when we get into some of these conversations sometimes. Um, There was an article recently uh, written by a a president of a, a, a theological seminary in London He called it evangelism and the art of picking your battles. And he was actually writing it to Christians and the way they interact with one another online. He said, the world watches our internal Christian debates on Twitter and Facebook. And often they are confirmed in their suspicions that we are a strange ghetto community with exotic and baffling views. Anybody read the comments section on a sort of a a, a preacher's YouTube video or some sort of Christian peace or I'm not on Facebook so I can assume none of you have these secondary um, really evangelism debilitating debates (laughs) but uh, it's really interesting what he says he says because we talk so much about these secondary issues right emphatic about when dinosaurs were on the earth. And it matters. And I'm going to be rude to you to prove my point about dinosaurs. On and on it goes. Just random stuff. He went on to say these conversations make it harder for evangelism to take place. It looks so silly. He gave two, I think, really wonderful encouragements. And this is, this is truly, I'm doing this. this we're in the 21st century. I'm, I'm giving a point here about social networks, <laughs> how we are to act online. It, it really plays itself out anywhere, but specifically online. Here's a couple things. Don't major on the minors. Don't get into heated discussions online that major on minor things. Major on the major. Major on the gospel. Major on who Jesus is. Major on life transformation that's taking place in your life. Major on the centrality of the good news that changes lives. That's the major thing. When there's a watching world, watching how we interact, this second piece factors in. If you're going to engage in an internal conversation about points of, or, of doctrine or Christian practice online, then do so in a gracious manner. Everything the Christian does is to be done with a measure of grace, kindness, hospitality, generosity, selflessness and service, kindness. It's so critical because there's a watching world and as we debate about minor or strange sidebar things, a watching world checks out and discredits the main thing. Well, Jesus responds to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus responds in three parts. He announces that soon Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim temples will no longer be the definitive place of worship. He insists that salvation, secondly, comes from the Jews. Here's why. The Old Testament, um, the, 
the Samaritans had scriptures and they were the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They didn't credit the Jewish prophets that we have in our Old Testament. That was not a part of their Bible. And so Jesus is saying that salvation comes through the Jews for two reasons. The Old Testament, which taught about salvation, is from the Jews and the Messiah came through the Jews. Therefore, he insists that salvation comes from the Jews simply because they reveal Jesus. Thirdly, he explains the nature of the worship that will forever render obsolete the conflicting claims about Jerusalem and Gerizim. See, Jerusalem and Gerizim will be bypassed by those who truly worship the Father. It's not about where, it's about how and whom. Look at verse 22 and we'll look at this last point of in spirit and truth. You must worship, sorry, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The time has come. The time has happened in Christ. The fact that Jesus is there. See, true worshipers cannot be identified by their attachment to a particular shrine, but by their worship of the Father in spirit and in truth. It's about how That's the head and the heart, spirit and truth. And whom? And it's Jesus. Where becomes obsolete. See, when it comes to worshiping God, location doesn't matter. In light of Jesus, location doesn't matter. We've talked about the indwelling Holy Spirit. Location no longer matters. Once Jesus gifted his followers with the Holy Spirit indwelling within them. So if this place burned down, I would knock on wood right now, but I don't really believe that anyways, and there's no wood closed, and knocking on the communion table seems wrong. All right, there's a tangent. And I lost my train of thought. If this place were to burn down, we could rent a gym, and we could gather the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, and continue to worship Jesus. And we wouldn't need to worry. We've got insurance. But also, we wouldn't need to worry because it doesn't matter. 46100, whatever our address is, is not the significant piece. This building helps us do effective ministry. We make use of it, absolutely. We optimize it as much as we can, sure. But it doesn't matter for worship of God. Location doesn't matter. That might lead you to asking whether the church matters. It certainly does. Christians are to gather for the sake of corporate worship, for the sake of encouraging and edifying one another, sitting under the word of God, being accountable. All of those things, we're told over and over again how we are to gather and be a church. Yet the place doesn't matter because wherever we gather, the spirit of God dwells within us because we are to worship in spirit and in truth. When the women go off on their retreat, we can be confident that they can worship in spirit and in truth. It's an amazing thing and it's a gift of God through his son Jesus who gifts us the Holy Spirit. And it has nothing to do with place. We can worship in Sardis, Chilliwack, Agassiz, even hope. It's amazing. (laughs) To worship God in spirit and truth is all about how and whom you worship. Jesus is the temple. Worship is spirit with heart. See, Matthew 15, 8, Jesus says, These people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. See the issue there? It's lip service, but their hearts are far. That's the spirit part. See, it's Holy Spirit empowered, certainly, but it's, it's also, it's our spirit. What's our heart doing as we engage? We are to, our hearts are be, to be filled 
with love and worship that's sincere, we truly mean it when we worship him. That's to worship in spirit. And to worship in truth, most simply put, is to worship the God we discover in the Bible and to worship him sincerely from our hearts. See, true worship is biblical worship. What God reveals about himself in the scriptures is true worship. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, I spend half my time telling Christians to study doctrine. And the other half of the time telling them doctrine is not enough. I spend half my time telling Christians to study doctrine. And the other half of the time telling them it's not enough. Why? The doctrine fills our minds. We can be filled with the knowledge. We can understand these truths. But we've got to believe and love and truly worship hearts engaged. This God we've come to discover in the scriptures and in rich doctrine. May we be a church that worship God in spirit and in truth. Amen? Amen. Why don't we pray together? Lord God, thank you so much for your encounter with this woman at the well. God, I'm so thankful that this conversation you had 2,000 years ago with her applies today. Lord, if there is anyone who has not come to know Jesus yet in this room, Lord, I pray that they would accept the invitation you gave to this woman of living water, this water that you give that leads to eternal life and even flourishing here and now in the meantime. Oh God, this gift is so rich and we're thankful for it. So Lord, I pray that those who don't know Jesus, may, may they come to know him this morning and drink of that water and be satisfied for eternity. For those of us who have had that drink, Lord, may it be worship to us once again to remember, to reflect on, to glory in the gift you've given us in your Son and your indwelling Holy Spirit and the promise of eternal life in you. Thank you, Jesus. Doesn't matter if we're clean, doesn't matter if we're neat, doesn't matter if our sins are respectable or if we are complete outcasts. You offer us this water and I praise you for that truth. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.